Hey everyone, Jody Avergan here. What's the point is not making new episodes hosted by me, but from time to time we'll bring you some of our favorite episodes from the archives for you to re-listen to. Take a listen and stay subscribed to this feed. Keep spreading the word as we will be bringing you new stuff like our science series Sparks and the occasional best of shows a few times a month from here on out. Thanks again for listening. Here we go. And now my conversation with political scientist Fotini Christia of MIT about how she and her colleagues use cell phone data to report on daily life in Yemen. Before we got to the specifics of her findings, I started by asking her about the basic data challenge in that country. In other words, the problem that she's trying to overcome. Here is Christia. So um, Yemen is a fascinating place, um, though we have quite a bit of anecdotal evidence. It tends to be very selected. And what I mean by this is it's usually from journalists that can be on the ground in very particular places. So there's a lot we don't get to hear about Yemen, exactly because it's so hard to, to do social scientific or analytic work on the ground. So it's not a place that has rich census data. It's not a place that has uh, rich household level data, uh, recent survey or polling data. So, so the type of information we usually have in the developed world is not available in places like Yemen. The data that you are working from, the kind of uh, source for all this is uh, metadata, which I think is a term people here in the U.S. Are, are fairly familiar with, given the last few years of conversations about you know the NSA and phone records and so forth. But it's anonymized cell phone data from 10 million users and hundreds of millions of calls. And this was between 2010 and 2013. So what else do we need to know about this data set? And then talk a little bit about the kind of patterns, as you said, that, that start to emerge. So what's interesting about this data is that it's it's a period where we have a lot of things going on in Yemen. So we have um, the Arab Spring that lasted throughout 2011 all the way to the beginning of 2012. We have uh, drone strikes at, uh, happening at the same period. We have um, Al-Qaeda elements on the ground controlling parts of, of Yemen in kind of the south. So uh, so this has been, this were very interesting, uh, a very interesting three years. What we tried to look at was uh, seeing whether what descriptives we get just from looking at everyday call patterns. So, um, and very interesting things arose. Again, this is this is we we have other work that tries to be more analytical, and I will discuss this, this in a second as well. But even just trying to look for patterns, which is what people tend to do with these uh, big um, data sets, uh, was very revealing. You know, how did you get your hands on this data set? These, it's, these data, exactly because it's, it's sensitive and you want to make sure it, it stays anonymized, one of the cell phone companies in Yemen agreed to share data for, for this particular time period with the, the intent that it will assist us in, in uh, understanding aspects of Yemeni life and in helping with the development for Yemen and the country. So the intent was very clearly directed towards development. And uh, so that was kind of the, the agreement behind them agreeing to, to uh, release it. And, of course, everything is fully anonymized, et cetera, et cetera, for privacy concerns. Give us a sense of how wired a country Yemen is. So when you're looking at cell phone data, kind of how reliable of a data set is that in terms of describing the population? As I implied, this is a place that because also there's no 3G connection, so people don't have kind of mobile data, there's only... 
20% or so internet penetration, but cell phones, there seems to be over 80% of uh, cell phone penetration. So, of course, you know, this is measured in terms of a uh, number of SIM cards. And we know that in places like Yemen, on some level, it could be underestimating the number of people that are on uh, the grid because they, they may share a phone in the household. There's no landlines are not very prevalent, especially right. not in the rural areas. So we can see how the, how that could there could be people who are underestimating. There's also some people, of course, that have more than one SIM card, <laughs> and uh, but but it's, it's it's so I'm trying to explain that it's not one to one equivalency, but there's definitely um, a lot of coverage. As I said, over eighty percent. And my general sense, I think you will learn over the course of this interview that I don't know that much about Yemen, but uh, my general sense is that it is one of these countries that is the place no one's talking about, right? It's, it's, it's almost mentioned as the place that no one is actually mentioning, you know, and that, you know, if there are efforts to work in the Middle East and to do maybe counterterrorism or humanitarian work, there's other countries that are kind of like higher on the profile of the priority list. And then all of a sudden, every five years, we turn around and say, oh, wow, Yemen is like actually a trouble spot that no one's been paying attention to in this way. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a lot more attention, obviously, on places like Egypt or Iraq or um, even in places, other places in North Africa. I mean, um, the thing with Yemen is it's it's hard uh, to, to work in. It's smaller. Um, it's very tribal and very fractured. Um, people actually, on the one hand, we know it for all the kind of as a hotbed for al-Qaeda terrorists. Uh, but at the same time, we're always also surprised that it's not even worse than it is. I mean, it's interesting that in the narrative, it's always that it's troubled. And it's always like, you know, we, we're not there enough. We don't know enough about it. But it's also us feeling real relax that it's not as bad as it could have been, given right. that it's tribal and fractured and all that. This week's podcast is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. February can be a tough month for sleeping. Your body is trying to adjust to darker days, longer nights, and central heating. I'm recording this in a hotel room right now. The mattress here is not that good. The temperature here is not that great. But with Casper, the one perfect mattress, you will get a great night's sleep. Casper Mattresses have two high-tech foams that provide all the comfort and support you need and keeps your body at the right temperature. No more sticking one foot out to cool off or curling up in the blankets to keep warm. When you order your Casper Mattress, it ships for free in a box so small you won't believe that there's a mattress in there. But there is. Take it out. Watch it unfurl. It's a mattress. Trust us. It's in there. You can even try your Casper for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they'll come pick it up and refund you everything, no questions asked. Casper's got the right bounce, the right sink, and it's guaranteed to give you the best night's sleep ever. Try your Casper in your home, in your own room, for 100 nights with free shipping and returns. Go to casper.com slash WTP and use the code WTP for $50 off towards your purchase of your mattress. That's casper.com slash WTP. Use the code WTP for $50 off. Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. This week's podcast is also brought to you by Lyft. You know about Lyft, right? It's the app that gets you a ride in minutes, on demand, 24-7 for less than the cost of a cab. With Lyft, you just download the app, request a driver, and they show up in about three and a half minutes on average, which is really, really fast. And one thing I learned you can do is you can also schedule a ride in advance. So if you have an early morning trip to the airport, you can set it to come at 6 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. and it'll be there and you're on your way. 
Every Lyft driver is fully vetted with their 10-point safety standard, including criminal and DMV background checks. You'll know you'll get around quickly and safely. And Lyft is a way to get around, but it also makes you feel good about the relationship between you and your driver. With Lyft, you can tip in the app, which obviously leads to happier drivers, and you feel good about giving someone a little something extra for their hard work. Right now, Lyft is offering listeners a special deal. Get three free rides up to $10 each. That's up to a $30 value. When you enter the promo code POINT, just download the free Lyft app today and enter the promo code POINT in the payment section. You'll start with three free rides up to $10 each, up to a $30 value. That's promo code POINT when you download the app Lyft, L-Y-F-T. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned all of the, what we can probably characterize as, as strife or, you know, large events that happened in these three years. But I, I think what I was most struck by is just the way that your data just reveals kind of a pattern of daily normal life. And it's just like, you can't emphasize enough that despite the fact that we re- define these countries by, you know, these bad headlines and these epic events, which your data does also reveal, more than anything, there's just, you just kind of see the, the rhythms of the week and the rhythms of daily life. And in these kind of data, sets, uh, you can sort of just get a sense of what life is is like for quote-unquote normal uh, humanities. So let's start there. I mean, what did you learn just about the kind of day-to-day rhythms? Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, it was interesting to see how much religion defines the uh, everyday life, meaning that activity, call activity starts soon after the first morning prayer. Um, You also see on Fridays kind of a big dip in calls when people attend the Friday prayers that are known uh, because they also involve a large gathering around uh, religious sermons that are being delivered at mosques on Fridays. And that's that's a big part of, of a weekly routine. I mean, the Friday prayer for Yemeni men. So I would figure that there's just fewer phone calls being made when most of the men are praying. They're praying. They're listening to the sermon. It's interesting to know that they're not multitasking, texting the friends at the same time. <laughs> that would be but a yeah. big scoop if your data revealed that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's none of that. They, they're actually kind of, um, they're very uh, serious about their, their prayer time. And, and that's, in, that's captured. That's definitely captured in the data. Um, the, the religious life aspect is also vividly captured uh, during the holidays. So we saw how the pattern of everyday life literally flips during Ramadan. So this is a month uh, during the year because it's around the lunar calendar, the celebration. It varies what month of the year it is. But what we see is that during that month when people actually have to fast for the whole day uh, and they break the fast after sunset, you see that they tend to work less. They tend to sleep more during the day. They tend to stay up all night making calls then. So it's a very interesting kind of mirror image of what happens during the day in regular months. Then it kind of becomes the nighttime activity during Ramadan. So religion was definitely uh, there, uh, and we saw it affecting everyday life. Um, We also saw uh, the role of cut being a very kind of big part of of daily activity. And what I mean by that is we also see a dip in phone calls uh, during the hours, the early afternoon hours where we know people chew cut and actually this activity can take anywhere between three to five hours so describe what cut is and what the activity is and and just kind of how defining it is as part of the the rhythm of a day yes so cut is um, a a leafy plant that uh, is grown in areas it's grown in yemen ethiopia somalia and uh, some parts of kenya it's a very popular um 
stimulant. So men and women in Yemen like to chew it. And it takes a while for it to kind of kick in. So they're not after immediate gratification in the sense they can chew for three to four hours to get kind of the stimulation from this, uh, from this uh, plant. Um, it's, uh, it, it takes, it, it's actually incredible what, how big of a part it is from, for economic activity in Yemen too. I mean, it's a huge market. People spend a big part of their income on cut. A huge amount of water in Yemen is diverted to cut uh, cultivation, which has created a lot of problems for the country. But it, it's interesting to see that it's it is indeed a big part of, of I mean, the daily really activity. I mean, it really is that prevalent that it shows up on you know large aggregated data sets. You can see when people are basically doing their afternoon pick me up stimulant. It's absolutely that prevalent. I mean, there are arguments that there's up to ninety percent of Yemenis who chew. And there's so much, so many variants, and and you know people have preferences about which type of plant makes sense for them. They make deals around chewing cut. They discuss uh, family issues. They resolve politics. Some people, even during the Arab Spring, you knew how intense the protests were based on whether people would stop to chew cut. Hmm. So uh, the, it was a, it was definitely a, it is a very very revealing um, aspect of Yemeni life in in the in the sense that it, it is a very prevalent aspect of it. And what's interesting is that it, it doesn't, it, all social classes are engaged in it. So it's, it's not a particular kind of subset of the population. And it manifests itself in the data with regards to phone calls that what activity, you see a break and then activity rises up again because there's some, some afternoon stimulation. Exactly. And it's, right. it's, it's funny, but it's true that people tend to be very talkative after they chew. So you see them uh, making calls and, and kind of discussing several issues. And it's not just that there's more calls. Those calls tend to also be longer. So um, it's, it's easily associated with the, the effects that the medical effects that we know chewing cut actually has. Right, and it makes me wonder if we could, I'm sure someone out there has this data set, you could probably see patterns of like people in the U.S., you know, their post-lunch lull and then their mid-afternoon coffee break that maybe gets, you know, I wonder how much U.S. productivity increases between, you know, right after that coffee break pretty equivalent yeah no for sure i just i just have a sense that maybe the kick you get from cat is a little stronger than the coffee Um, okay, so one other element, and you, you hinted at it earlier, but that you can sort of see revealed in, in, in the phone call data, you can actually see what happens in the wake of a drone strike. Can you talk a little bit about how that shows up in the data and, and kind of what lessons it teaches us about the effect of drone strikes in a country like Yemen? Yes. So people have looked to call records to try and see if in, indeed it's possible to detect some sort of anomaly or some sort of shock that comes from the system. So they've, they've looked at the earthquakes, for instance, or, or they looked at, they've looked at the effects of other natural disasters. And in this case, it was interesting for us to, to look at a shock that it is exogenous, you know, a drone strike. They don't expect it to hit. And, and we wanted to see what type of effect it has on the level of communication. So we do see, it's interesting to see that they, there are 
spikes. So we can detect when a drone strike happens. And we validate that against information that we have from the news and from from the press of when the strike indeed was was reported. But what we do see is that it, is, that it tends to be a localized effect. So it's there. It's picked up uh, th- when we look at the volume of calls in the proximate towers from the strike, but it's not something that you can detect on the national level looking at Yemeni calls. So, th- as you said, we can look at you, we can see the pattern of cut is uh, is reflected on the national level, but it's such a strike, it's a shock, but we can only see locally. I think I can infer kind of what that means for what's happening on the ground, but it basically means that when there's a drone strike in a particular area, people call their loved ones, people reach out like anyone would in any sort of disaster. Yes, it's interesting. We are also now doing some additional analysis where we are examining the direction of calls. So if it's people calling out from the drone strike, but also if there's some sort of cascade effect, so how many people call them back, and then how many people of, of the ones that were called made more calls to kind of spread the news of the strike, so to speak. And and what we see is that it, there doesn't seem to be any massive form of cascading. So we do note the strikes. They're notable in the call data records. We see that they get people calling their loved ones. As you suggested, we do see that these are the people they call. They call friends and family. But we don't see kind of some sort of massive spread of the information and kind of... Uh, Uh, peters out. So um, it's interesting to see that the drone strikes have an effect, but it's a localized effect. I feel like that is the heart of the drone strike conversation is this notion of ripple effects and how targeted we actually can be or how destructive it is to a larger community in general. So, you know, as you said, you don't have the answers, but what are the questions that are that are coming up for you that you feel like you need to to answer? Or how is this advancing that kind of more difficult conversation? I think what was really interesting for us to see was that the this effect was so localized, and again we we can it's this may have implications for policy to what degree you know there's been a lot of discussion about how devastating these drone strike are drone strikes are in terms of our profile in terms of getting people mobilized to join uh, militant groups and I'm not saying that our research will offer the definitive answer to this but it's just interesting uh, we also note that uh, some drone strikes are not even picked up from um, in the call data and that's because they tend to be literally in the middle of nowhere so there's no even any kind of towers in the proximate area so i guess that w- that wouldn't be surprising and that's probably a strategic choice on where and when to target but the ones that do happen in populated areas and these are not i, I want to note that this is these are not areas kind of in the capital or very big cities so again they're they're less pop- populated than other parts of yemen you, we did we did note the strikes, which was kind of the first um, level of, of uh, our analytic work. But then we we're very interested in trying to understand how the information about the strike propagates and what sort of effect it has in terms of an informational cascade. And we saw that this was this effect was very limited. So our first reaction was, hmm, maybe these drone strikes don't have as kind of a huge impact. As, as the detract are, as people who are against drone strikes want to think, uh, or it may just be that this is not how information gets disseminated in places like Yemen. So it may be that 
it's not really the phone calls on the individual level from people that experience the strike, they're kind of in the vicinity of the strike, that are problematic about, you know, that get people militarized against the U.S. or trying to join groups, etc. It could just be that the local imam, for example, just says something at the Friday sermon that has to do with a drone strike, and that's how people get mobilized. So I think it would be too simplistic from our side to deduce that because we don't see that having a, br- a big kind of national level um, cascade type of effect, it's, it's, it doesn't have any uh, important implications. Uh, but it's also important to say that on the local individual level, uh, it's, it's, it's a very specific type of effect, and we can actually measure that. So... We're trying to get a sense of what it is that we can and cannot say. Is this a combination of U.S. drone strikes and Saudi Saudi Arabia is doing airstrikes as well, or is this just U.S. drone strikes? Uh, yeah, this is a, this data that we were looking at was from 2010 to 2013, so this was before any sort of intervention from the Saudi side. So these were just drone strikes uh, that were um, U.S. drone strikes with kind of it's it's presumed that there is a general backing of of the Yemeni mm-hmm. government right. behind it, but I just wanted to uh, give you a sense of how we went about this. We there is this uh, the data that the New America Foundation is collecting in terms of drone strikes, and uh, we overlaid information we had about the location and timing of those events from from that data against the call data records that that we had from these areas. So this is how we were able to see if 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 we indeed detect. Uh, kind of the anomaly caused or the expected anomaly caused by an exogenous shock such as the drone strike. In this time period, 2010 to 2013, you mentioned, along with all the many other things we've discussed, uh, the Arab Spring was in your data set. So how was that reflected, I guess, in Yemen, but also, you know, Yemen was one of many, many countries that had this. And we think of the Arab Spring as being very kind of tech driven and cell phone organized in a way. So was that reflected? Yeah, so that was that was very interesting. Indeed, we see uh, we see a lot of cell phone activity. We see a lot of SMS what was interesting about Yemen, which was not the case in other parts of the Arab world that experienced the Arab Spring, like Egypt, for example, is that it doesn't have, uh, there's no 3G network in Yemen, so there was no, no use of social media and the internet, the same way that it was the case in Egypt. So all the mobilization that was not happening through word of mouth was happening through cell phones. So that makes our data particularly interesting in the Yemeni context uh, because there's so much that could be captured in the actual uh, call data records. So there we try to use, leverage the role of mobility kind of because we have information not just of who calls whom and from where to where, but also, yeah, this, this, the, the location aspect, kind of the antennas were, were critical in that regard. So we, again, geolocated and coded all the Arab Spring events, protests, bombings, attacks, violent, nonviolent from the side of, of, of the government and the police. And we tried to see whether 
we noted kind of we could see kind of an increase a surge in activity but we are also interested and in, we're very much working on this in trying to understand the collective action around um, protests so how people mobilize uh, who are the people that kind of rise up as lead revolutionaries and and what are the characteristics what makes kind of a lead revolutionary uh, in a context like this, because we have information about these people before the Arab Spring, during, and after, so we can we are able to see kind of how their network evolves. But wait, are you implying that that there's a little more granularity to some of this data that you can actually get down to specific protesters and see the, the information going through them as as a locus in this network? Absolutely. So, of course, this data, as I said, is anonymized, and our intent is by no means to create some sort of blueprint of how to suppress revolutions. There are other people working on that, yes. <laughs> exactly, that authoritarian governments could use. I mean, that's obviously not the intent, and, and I think that's also the reason why we would never present these results on kind of the individual level. But, but there were very interesting dynamics on the ground in terms of how people mobilized around these events. So, you had um, people call, uh, gathering around what was called University Square or later was called Change Square in Yemen. And these at the beginning tend to overwhelmingly be students. And we see uh, the, you know, we have a presumption that probably students mobilize differently than tribals who, who came down and kind of joined the so-called counter-revolutionary camp. Because what was interesting in Yemen was you had the students on one side and then on a different square, which was ironically Tahrir Square in Yemen, you had the government supporters organizing. So we're trying, we're, we're actively working on this now. We're trying to understand what the different mobilization patterns are between tribal uh, people from the tribes versus students, uh, because we think that's, that could be very interesting in terms of uh, how people mobilize around violent and nonviolent events in a place like Yemen. And so you would just see, you know, a, a spike in activity, and then you could correlate that to uh, an event that happened, you know, an hour later or so forth. I mean, how quickly of a turnaround, you know, was this spike versus and then real life event? Yes, yeah, some of the things, and again, this is preliminary, but we, we could see that the, for some of the events, they were even organizing kind of the night before. So we saw a certain kind of set of calls and then these same people appearing at the square the next day. So it wasn't all kind of a last minute uh, type of intervention. We also saw that some of these events, we get blackouts for, meaning that it seemed like the antennas were getting shut down, mm -hmm. which we could see the government uh, uh, doing that uh, to kind of prohibit uh, communication. So that would have been more difficult for real time, and you could see why the protesters may have been planning ahead on how exactly to, to go around this issue of, of, of the shutdown of the, of the antennas. So what you're describing there seems like it starts to get at something that could potentially be predictive, not just reflective. Yeah, so uh, we all would like to also be able to say something that's not just about describing past events. I think we can we can conclusively say that we will try to get a very good picture of that would describe the events, but then uh, one would have to think hard about how much of this generalizes and how much of it generalizes within Yemen for future events and how much it may generalize outside Yemen for other parts of the Muslim world where protests may be uh, something that will come up. Um, let me ask a kind of half-baked question about the Arab Spring. You know, it was a movement that had a sort of promise of technology, and, and as we've described it a little bit, was sort of driven by technology. Um, 
and there was the you know the Twitter revolution, the quote unquote Twitter revolution uh, before that, and I think in the you know Arab summer or Arab fall or whatever you want to say came after the Arab spring. There's been this maybe reckoning with the fact that you can have technology and organizing and fast moving you know mobilization, but the sort of civil society that comes after that was maybe. A harder process. So I don't know. I don't know. You, you are thinking about these things much better than I am. And I'm just wondering kind of how you think of technology versus what comes next. No, I think this is an absolutely excellent question. I think it, it just shows that people had new tools. So it wasn't just having to rely on word of mouth or some tribal leader or, or just uh, the imam at the mosque kind of uh, uh, mobilizing them around a cause. And now they had the power of in their own hands, using cell phone calls, SMS to go about it. In the Yemeni context, as I said, the social media was was not a was not a, a big part of this, but we know it was in other places like Egypt. But the the big question there was: uh, Is this enough? Having people mobilized around the cause, and how do you keep them mobilized after kind of these? these events go away and and this is where you do see the role of institutions so in in the context of egypt you had very strong pre-existing institutions in the form of the army for example and and you saw that that end up dominating politically the scene um later uh, as things progressed in yemen where the institutions were weaker you saw that there was a, a competition among uh different tribes that tried to kind of fill the void, the the political and leadership void that was left after the removal of that long-standing president. So you see that uh, technology on its own, uh, of course, it's not enough, and and there's still an important role for institutions and an important role for civil society and, and strengthening civil society. Um, that takes time, and and all, doesn't always have the desired effects. I mean, we saw that, as you said. A lot of people see the Arab Spring t- turn into, some people would call it the Arab winter. Because we might be at winter it didn't already, quite, yes. It didn't quite have the, um, the after, the, the effects that we had, we had hoped and anticipated. I think there was a lot of excitement, um, but then because of other structural realities on the ground, um, it, the, the kind of hope didn't quite become a reality. I wonder, just taking a step back and looking at uh, all the different stories that come out of this data set, what do you, just as a researcher or as a person, kind of like? Do you like those little glimpses into daily life and the daily routine? Or, you know, maybe a soccer team does really well and everyone's calling each other. Or do you like the stuff that's more, I don't know, policy-oriented or about development or so forth? The fascinating thing about this data is that you can see both and you can see kind of the confluences and synergies between these two so for instance uh, you are interested about the you're interested in the larger political patterns for instance who shows at a demonstration who takes a leadership role in a demonstration but you also want to know what is this guy like uh, when and and by having this data you know what he's like you know where he lives you know um who he calls and who his friends are you know if he's 
she or Sunni, dep- depending on what holidays he makes calls. Hmm. You know, if he's rich or poor, depending on how much phone credit he uses. I mean, there's just so many different things one can get out of this data that will allow to offer a lot more granularity and information in kind of the bigger policy uh, picture that one tries to draw. And I think what's interesting is that people have been using such data very actively for uh, epidemiology, uh, for health, for development more broadly in these parts of the world that are data scarce and and difficult to access. But what I was trying to highlight with this piece and with our efforts to try to look at this data set more closely is that there is a lot to be said about collective action and political activity. Um, that can also be captured in in these data sets. And I think a place like Yemen is particularly interesting in that regard. So I wonder what other kind of data backdoors there are into inaccessible or violent countries uh, besides cell data. Um, this is this is very interesting, and, and people have been trying to, to 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 figure this out. I think what was what I found particularly interesting for some of the recent research out of Iraq and Syria, people look at uh, night lights, so they see, they see the fact that there is where there is less electricity, and where where there is less light night lights. What that means about the presence of the government. There were some researchers hmm. that did some recent uh, work on that out of Syria. There's another really interesting um, piece of information that, again, comes from satellite imagery, where you can see how many homes were burned down and pillaged after um, some of the areas were claimed back by ISIS, because there were some arguments from the Sunni side in Iraq that there were retributions. So when the Iraqi army was taking back areas, that they were actually... Um, you know, burning down homes, etc., presuming that these people had collaborated with the Islamic State. It's interesting, you know, what I wanted to emphasize here is that there's a lot you can see from these type of data sources, but unless you triangulate the information with actual um, qualitative or survey data on the ground, it's very hard to know what the underlying mechanism is. So for, for that discussion in Iraq, you had the Sunnis claiming that it was people burning down their houses because they claimed that they were collaborators. And then you had the Iraqi army saying, no, these were all pl- places that had been booby-trapped by the Islamic State. So we, they were actually dangerous for us and for the population, and we had to destroy them. It's very hard to know what's, uh, where the truth lies, maybe somewhere in between. But I think the, the bigger picture here, and this is something we're also trying to do with the Yemen data, we're also... We, have, we are trying to create a sense of how the revolution played out based on call data records, but we're also conducting interviews, and that's the, the intent to also have rich interview data with actual participants in the revolution to try and see what their side of the story was, but to also try to understand the ecology of how information was communicated and spread besides the, the call data. So it's both for validation purposes to see if our story makes sense, but it's also for... Uh, external validity more broadly meaning trying to understand to what degree it applies to collective action and communication through other means not just through phone calls and do you think there are lessons for the united states and other developed countries or is this really about places where there isn't that kind of easy access so i think there's definitely lessons for the u.s in terms of um you know trying to think very creatively about measurement and about uh 
all the types of information that's available to us to try and make informed decisions. I think the, the big thing there is, one, uh, respecting privacy. We have been kind of targeted that, that the U.S., you know, it's out there. We don't respect privacy. We, the way we use this data may not be as uh, well-intentioned as we like to present. And I think this is an important thing. I think making it sure that it's transparent, anonymized, and, and what the actual intent of this research is. I think the, these, all these things are, are important when we use data like this. But I also, I also believe that another kind of big part in, in using this information is not forgetting that you also need to know kind of the, the view on the ground. So to the degree that you can get a sense from individuals whether what you're seeing in the big data seems to be consistent with what they're experiencing on the ground, I think that check for the truth mm -hmm. is still important. We don't have to just rely on that anymore in this, in this data uh, poor places that's good to know, but we, we still have to validate. Uh, Fotini, Christia, thank you so much for joining us. This is really fascinating and important work, so I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. We had studio help from Tony Chow. Our intern is Jonathan Yales. And special thanks this week to Brianna Breen. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter, that's Jody with a Y, or email me at podcasts at 538.com. That's podcasts with a P. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast, which, if you're not listening to, you should start listening to as soon as I finish this next paragraph. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating or a review. It really does help others discover the show. You can find all of our shows, this one, our elections podcast, our sports podcast, on our brand new landing page on the 538 website, 538.com slash podcast. It looks kind of pretty. Thanks for listening. See you soon.